Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 289 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, guys, happy anniversary. It's the fifth anniversary today of this podcast. I know there's like two of you from the very beginning who got this thing launched. And uh, here we are five years later. Man, journeys like this are so fun. And I just, my heart is overflowing with gratitude. Back when we started in, uh, let's see, that was 2014. Can you believe that? Seems like eons ago. And also yesterday, we launched with episode one with Andy Stanley. And man, it's been an incredible journey ever since. And uh, one of my hopes, and some of you longtime listeners and subscribers know this, was I, you know, when I was a young leader, I just wanted to get some time with top leaders. And, you know, I had no way to get to people who were on the stage or writing books or that kind of thing, because, you know, I was just trying to lead in the trenches. And I always thought, wow, if I ever did, what would I ask them? And then started speaking and writing and had the opportunity to be in green rooms with some of these people that. I had really admired from afar. And I would leave after a conversation and thought, hey man, that was so good. And I just thought, I wish everybody could hear it. And then I launched the podcast and now guess what? That's the MO for this thing. I wish everybody could hear it and now you can. So I try to bring you the back room conversations, the not like, hey, what did you say in chapter three of your book? But more like, you know, the kind of conversation you would wanna have, I would hope with a leader if you had that kind of time with that leader. It's the backstory behind leadership. And so we got five incredible years, 289 episodes, and uh, man, even more planned for the year ahead. The best way to continue you get this on a regular basis is to subscribe. I really only listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. There are just so many of you who have done that. And thank you for that. And thank you for being the ones who have really made this podcast last. Uh, You're the ones who are telling your friends, who are discussing this with your team. And I want to give you a little orientation around the podcast. First of all, um, we are doing a giveaway today that winds up today. And it is the Stack Your Library giveaway. So one of the uh, comments we get from you guys is, hey, I love the podcast, but like my book budget gets blown because I buy all these books. So we're going to stack the library of nine listeners and we're going to announce who won today on social media. So head on over and check out my Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We'll be announcing the winners. Uh, I think thousands of you have entered by this point. It's crazy. And so we're going to pick a winner. And you'll get five books of any podcast alumnus of your choice and also all of my books. And we'll send those to you. And so those winners will be announced today on my social media channels. And again, thanks guys so much for sharing this. Also, uh, hey, many of you are asking, what can I do to give back? Well, first of all, subscribe. And secondly, if you would leave a rating and review in the iTunes store or wherever you listen to podcasts, I would be so grateful for that. We have over a thousand. Thank you to Isaac F. who said a phenomenal experience, five stars. Ever since I heard Kerry speak in Nashville, I've been drawn to how he teaches around the world of leadership. If you're a pastor, business leader, anyone who leads this podcast will give you so much context and encouragement. Uh, Kerry knows how to dig out the best of his guests, and I will continue to tap into the awesome potential of this podcast. Thanks, Kerry and team. And yes, thank you for the team. So Isaac, appreciate that. 
Um, one person says, are you kidding me? Uh, three hearts and five stars. I'm so stoked about the fuel this podcast is consistently depositing in my leadership. I love the guests that Carrie invites. Yeah, they are kind of eclectic and varied. They're always thought leaders who have a ton of great content. And uh, hey, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I read them all. Favorite podcast ever. Best podcast ever. Excellent content. Man, you guys, thank you for that. So Hey, that's a little introduction, a little bit of an extended introduction. And I also want to thank all of you listeners for supporting our partners. Um, Increasingly, I'm flying to different locations. There are obviously some costs associated with this podcast. So it comes to you for free. And we vet our partners on this podcast pretty carefully. And one of them is Remodel Health. And here's the cool part. When you do this well, everybody wins. So did you know that these guys have only been with us for a few months advertising and already those of you who listen to this podcast have saved $625,000 and plowed that right back into your ministry or nonprofit because you partnered with Remodel Health. So you know the feeling if you're an executive pastor or operations guy, you look at the health insurance summary of benefits for your faith organization, can't tell what you're reading, they're confusing, it's one size fits all. Well, what if you had an expert, uh, a team of experts, insurance, tax, and ministry experts who came alongside you and used innovative technology to help you change that? So by switching organizations from traditional group insurance to individual plans for each employee, Remodel Health has seen significant savings for both organizations and their teams. So again, podcast listeners to this podcast have saved over 625,000. Even though they're a new company, about a year old, they've already plowed $7.2 million back into ministry or the not-for-profits that they work with, about 10% to the listeners of this podcast. So if you're interested in learning more about their innovative solutions, because budget year is coming up, visit remodelhealth.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, to download their free church buyer's guide today. Also, guys, just so you know, we do uh, transcripts and show notes for every episode, and some of these appear on YouTube now these days, too. All the details you can find at leadlikeneverbefore.com. For those of you who like to read or share with the team, uh, I love the transcript option, and they are keyword searchable. So if you heard something, you don't have to read all 17 pages. You just like type in the keyword, boom, away you go. Anyway, looking forward to serving you for many more years. The best is truly yet to come. And now let me introduce to you my guest today, Tim Lucas. Tim walked away from church when he was 14, and little did he know that he would be planting a church, let alone a mega church. Liquid Church reaches over 5,000 people on the weekend. They have seven locations in all places, Jersey. (laughs) He's in Jersey. I uh, absolutely love stories of people who are doing almost impossible things in really hard places, and this is one of those stories. So here's my conversation with Tim Lucas. Well, I've been uh, waiting for this moment for a while, but it is a thrill to have my friend Tim Lucas on the podcast. Tim, welcome. Thank you, Carrie. What a joy to uh, be with you here and uh, virtually almost in Canada. You're almost in Canada. Well, you worked with a Canadian for a while, Rich Birch, right? So you're almost Canadian, really. (laughs) Well, I'm sending you greetings right at the city gates here of New York City. So I'm in Parsippany, New Jersey, about 25 minutes from Times Square. Yeah, that's pretty cool, right? To plant a church in New Jersey. And I've been to Liquid Church. I've I've spoken in Jersey a couple of times. And it's a big day for you, right? A normal day for Warren Bird because his 743rd book has come out. But is it your first? (laughs) He is a prolific 
author, and uh, it's a joy to partner with with Warren. You know, we wrote the book Liquid Church, and it really was his idea. He poked me a few years ago about this. Yeah. But uh, Tim Keller had said to me one time, he said, "Don't don't write anything until you're 50." Because you're not retracted. <laughs> well, I'm not. So I said, you know, I got to wait till I'm at least like 45 and like you can round up, you know. And uh, But Warren was a joy to work with. I mean, he just, you know, what a treasure he is to the ch- larger global church. He has a statistic for everything, no, you know. Um, it's it's incredible. So he's the brain. He brings the, you know, national statistics and I bring the sparkling stories. Yeah, it's really fun, too, because with the co-authorship, I mean, you've got a big personality, which is something I want to talk about today. But like your personality 100% comes through in the book. Oh, I'm so glad. Yeah, we want to kind of capture the spirit, you know, of our church where we always like to say, you know, one of our core values is uh, church is fun. So I always like to say we put the fun back in fundamentalism. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Uh, you do. We've spoken at events together. We've hung out with mutual friends, all that kind of stuff. One of the things I love about you is you're uniquely you. I don't ever get a sense from you that you're trying to imitate somebody else or be somebody else. It's totally Jersey too, which is unique, right? Like there's not a whole lot of giant churches in New Jersey, let alone thriving church plants in Jersey. Tell me about your childhood, uh, where you grew up, what it was like growing up. And I want to see what kind of formed the Tim that we know today. <laughs> well, I think most people, when they hear New Jersey, right, they think of Snooky and the Sopranos, right? <laughs> right, right, it's got right. Like the Jersey Shore, it's a little bit of the, you know, when, you know, when we're at these conferences or speaking, somebody say, New Jersey, you know, what good can come from New Jersey? It's kind of like the Nazareth diss, you know, of <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> right, right, 100%. Um, but, you know, but it formed me in a very powerful way. I grew up in a very small, you know, conservative Bible church, um, you know, about 120 people, same people. And it was very much that kind of, you know, fill in the blank, robust theology, but every passage has three points and it always spells something, you know. Yeah. And so by the time I was 14, I'm very grateful, you know, for the, you know, great scriptural teaching it gave me, but I was like ready to check out. I basically yeah. dropped out of church. And I would actually develop, if you can imagine this, migraines on Saturday night. It was like a psychosomatic because I knew church was coming. Well, pastors do that, but you're talking about you're not even a pastor and you're getting migraines? Like 14, 15 years old <laughs> because I knew, okay, we're going to the service. Then there's going to be Sunday school. Then there's going to be the after thing. Then we're going to come back for Sunday night and we're going through Leviticus verse by verse for the last nine years, you know. <laughs> And it was just, you know, 14 years old, and that's just not where I was. And so then when when I went to Wheaton College uh, out in Chicago, uh, where Warren also went, different years, and I met my wife, I kind of dropped out of, uh, you know, regular church going. I, I was kind of the over-churched guy, if you can imagine. But Wheaton, from Wheaton's Jersey. like a theological college, so you didn't lose your faith? or No, no, not no. I didn't have a fall away from faith, but it was interesting. I think a lot of people assumed, oh, well, of course, you went to Wheaton, so of course you're always going to be a— a pastor. I was actually an English major with a minor concentration in film studies. Wow. So my background is in storytelling and journalism. I was a journalism teaching assistant there. So I actually thought I would end up either in film or maybe, you know, magazine uh, industry and media in some way. And, um, but you know, that kind of leads into how we accidentally planted the church. Oh, that's cool. So so your parents had that kind of, like when you were, okay, when you were 14 years old, were you thinking one day I'm going to turn this thing upside down or you're just like, please don't make me go? <laughs> I was saying, please don't make me go. But then I'll tell you a funny story where, because I look back now and I'm sure you had this, 
You didn't know exactly where the Lord was leading you, but you had these kind of flashpoint moments that you look back and you say, oh, okay, that was the Lord preparing me. I remember having a summer job mowing the baseball fields in our town, you know, during the summer. And so what would happen is, you know, on Monday morning, get out there on a tractor, basically, shirt off. And if you can imagine, remember we had those, remember the old school, uh, you know, iPhones with the, you know, the, the string and everything and you have it in your, in your ears and everything. Oh yeah. Yeah. I would be driving out around, imagine going in circles on a baseball diamond in the outfield. And basically I would take the Sunday service that I thought this sermon was terrible. There's a terrible acrostic. The introduction was so boring. He didn't land the ending. There's no practical application. And I would re-preach it as a teenager on Mondays when I was mowing the lawns no right? way. in our town. Seriously? So, so if people, I can only imagine now, but if people, oh yeah, so like I would retell, I'd be like, okay, so he's, you know, I see what the point he's trying to make. Okay, I would open up with this joke and I would tell this joke to myself. I'm the only person in the outfield on this tractor. And if someone was walking by, you know, or driving by, they see this nut out in the field making these wild motions with his hands, ha 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 ha, laughing at my own jokes, you know? And I'm like, that is so funny. I didn't know it then, but that was kind of how like, you know, you had David in the sheep pens. That was kind of the yeah, Lord's yeah. formation, you know, when I was a teenager. Oh, that's so interesting, you know, because yeah, that that probably is the genesis of a calling for you. So you go and study journalism and what happens? So I loved Wheaton. I mean, um, the best thing uh, there, obviously, it's, you know, pretty rigorous academically, very spiritually rich. But what had happened is that um, church that I grew up in, I lovingly refer to as the Frozen Chosen. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Maybe some of your listeners can. (laughs) Well, I used to be part of a denomination that has that reputation, but we we digress. (laughs) Yeah, and and not name calling. I say that affectionately. Again, this is my family. Uh, So do I. Grateful to them. But it truly was like, you know, in the service, there was no emotion. Nobody dared laugh. You know, nobody could really raise their hands during worship. There's like a force field at our belt. Like, you can, <laughs> you want to raise a hand, but you can't, you know, kind of thing. And, you know, it, it was extremely, you know, classic modernist kind of service. You know, exactly 72 minutes. We're singing. Here's the, here's the you know, first, third, and fifth verse. You know, what's wrong with first, second, and fourth? It was always the same ones. And I would actually go through the, you know, the, the uh, I would call it the scorecard, right? Like the program checking off. <laughs> scorecard. And there'd be fill in the blank notes. And by the age of 14, I could fill in those blanks before the sermon was like preached because like you kind of heard it all, right? And so my parents would pay me a dollar if I could fill in the blanks. And so I would fill in the blanks and pass it down, you know, to my dad and my mom would shoot me this look like, you have to at least hear the sermon, but I wanted my dollar, you know, and of course he, my dad, like, just you'll appreciate this. He would give me the dollar in dimes because <laughs> you know where this is going. The first dime is going right in the offering plate. Right. So we're going to teach right. you to tithe. I mean, it was a training school, but really devoid of kind of the life-giving, you know, relationship with Christ where we're engaging culture. It was a little bit more of the holy huddle. And the philosophy was, you know, kind of put up the drawbridge because we're kind of the saved folks. And everyone else is going up kind of hell in a handbasket, but maybe they'll find Jesus someday and then they can join our club. Fast forward to Wheaton, I meet my wife, Colleen, freshman year writing class. And if I grew up frozen chosen, she grew up happy clappy. Uh, right. Pentecostal storefront church in the Bronx, you know? Uh-huh. 
And uh, I remember, man, seeing her in freshman writing class. Now, you know, Wheaton's in by Chicago. It's in the Midwest. So everyone's kind of preppy. But we're from New Jersey. You know, I'm not I'm like a Guido, but I got big hair. OK, guilty. Yeah, you do have big hair. <laughs> That well, big hair preacher handle that you had all those years ago, right? Well, so did she. So, so I walk into freshman writing class and I see this, you know, big blonde aquanetted bouffant sitting in the first row, and I was like, home, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there and there she was, and so I asked her out on a date, a fright call her Friday night, you know, available, and she says, "I'd love to go with you." But I'm actually, um, I'm sorry, I can't this Friday. I'm going to prison. And I was sort of like, <laughs> well, well I've, I've been turned down before. That's a new one. I haven't heard that. <laughs> That's a new one. I got to go to jail. I'm right? sorry. Yeah. But then I found out she's going to, she was doing pr uh, prison ministry. She was tutoring okay. young women who were incarcerated, you know, in, in a, a correctional facility as part of like her missions work. And I was just shocked by that. Who, what girl gives her Friday night? to go tutor young women and, you know, basic math skills. And that's when I, like, that really intrigued me. Then it moved beyond the big hair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Finding out who is this, who is this woman? Well, she had grown up Pentecostal storefront church. Her mom had a radical conversion to Christ. Uh, my wife's mother was uh, divorced at a very young age, about the age of 18. And so my wife grew up, I mean, going with her mom, you know, at the age of 10, 12 years old, she remembers her mom taking her to studio 54 on roller skates. No way. Bad that scene. famous uh, nightclub. Yeah, bad scene, you know, the whole the whole gamut, you know, and uh, Sodom and Gomorrah kind of stuff. And her mom had a radical encounter with Christ, totally changed her life. And so my wife, same way, she was about 12 years old, sees this mom, you know, her mom changes from, you know, kind of the prodigal wild child to responsible, loving mother who's leaning into grace. And they start going to this Pentecostal church in the Bronx where people would come in off the street and get saved. Wow. So imagine, you know, frozen chosen world collides with, you know, happy clappy. And I like to think, you know, liquid church now, it's like, you know, we're kind of like Baptocostal, right? We, we're right, open right. to the things of the spirit, but we got a seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> That's fascinating. So you meet your wife in college. How do you end up planting a church? Well, like I said, we're, we're, God tricked us is the answer. <laughs> mm, yeah. we're, we're, liquid is very much the accidental church plant. Um, again, at Wheaton, it was the last thing on my mind. Um, you know, my senior year, I spent out in Los Angeles in a, a, a internship in a Hollywood studio in the screenwriting department. That was my uh, passion, uh, cinema, storytelling, which, of course, informs a lot of what Liquid is today. We have a For very sure. kind of cinematic preaching style um, that seems to resonate a lot with millennials and Gen Z. But at the time, I thought, well, there was no place for that in the church. Um, and so... You know, we came back and we started attending a little church plant in New York City um, that no one had ever heard of before, this thing called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this unknown country preacher, Tim Keller. And, and what year was that that you would have joined up at Redeemer? So that Probably is, long before most people had heard of it. Yeah, it's like 1994, 95, mid-90s. Oh, yeah. So they're like five years into it. It's a, it's a couple uh, hundred one location. people. It was a few hundred people at uh, Hunter College. Yeah. No way. And so we would drive in from where we live in New Jersey, which again, it's only about 25 minutes. Um, but classic Manhattan, right? You pay $45 for parking, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, $20 for bagels. Well, there goes the tithe. Right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Sorry, That's coming right out of the offering. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, that was a big deal for us. Tim, Tim Keller was a, a very profound influence on my life because 
he made this bridge for me where he held up, of course, high view of scripture. Um, yeah. But then he would hold the New York Times up in the other hand and integrate the two. What does the Bible have to say to the New York Times, including the arts and leisure section? And it was just so culturally engaging. I had never seen that model before in church in my life. And they have extraordinary, you know, ministries of mercy to street people that my wife got involved in. So for us, it was like the perfect incubation phase to get a vision for what Liquid Church is today. Okay, so pick up the story from there. Uh, where where do you go? Uh, so you're at Redeemer, and uh, are you planning a career in journalism at that point? Yeah, so my wife uh, was working in the city. She has worked in the media industry for 22 years. And, um, you know, we like one of the reasons why most of the people at our church, even though we're, we have seven locations in New Jersey, they're mostly ringing the Manhattan area. Yeah. And so most of our folks identify with New York City. Um, you know, again, right. people who aren't from around here, they think Jersey Shore, you know, it's oh, what kind of, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, we have, we have a lot of uh, orange tanned, you know, Italian people. That is true. Uh, but, uh, most of our folks are very dialed into kind of the culture of, you know, that's happening in New York city. And so, um, we were living in New Jersey, but what we found is we're getting this first rate teaching on weekends from Tim Keller, but we couldn't be involved substantively in the body life of the church during the week. And mm -hmm. so after about three and a half years there, we made the decision to go to this Baptist church, 150 years old. Uh, closer to where we lived in New Jersey, very traditional, kind of like I grew up in, you know, a little bit more suit and tie, organ kind of vibe. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had some friends, you know, a couple friends who went and we went to that church. It was called Millington Baptist Church. Okay. And, you know, when we started going, and that's what Liquid was eventually birthed out of. But when we started going, I remember my friend saying, you're going to Militant Baptist Church? That's, <laughs> well, at least they're open about it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> But, but that's what evangelicalism is viewed here in the Northeast. Right. Right? It's yeah. just talking heads on CNN who are going to beat you over the head with the Bible or get in the culture wars. But Millington was just a beautiful, uh, and still is to this day, beautiful church full of grace. And they gave me a lot. You know, Kyle and I, when we started going, they said, hey, would you guys, you guys, they found out we went to Wheaton and the senior pastor, Peter Pendell, he's a mentor, a spiritual father of the faith to me to this day. Um, he said, would you guys be willing to teach a Sunday school class for 20-somethings? And uh, just to show you, Carrie, what a lack of colossal vision <laughs> we had. I mean, I will never forget that. I remember saying, well, it depends. How early do we have to show up? <laughs> right, right. Yeah, there you go. He's right. like, well, you can know, we do Baptist Church, service? 930 Sunday school. And, you know, Kyle's like, well, we can get there by 945. We got to get Starbucks, you know. We had no vision for what the you know liquid eventually become, but we started that Sunday school class. We said there are other twenty somethings, and he said, "Yeah, there's there's actually about eight of them." <laughs> pointed <laughs> pointed them out, and sure enough, and so we started that Sunday school class. You know, with I think including us it was about twelve people, mismatched folding chairs, Baptist church basement, bad coffee, and what we knew is we didn't want to do the fill in the blanks. So we started talking right. about real life issues, right? sex, relationships, career, purpose, meaning. And based on kind of my film background, I started using a lot of video clips and multimedia. And again, that, you know, we don't look at that today as revolutionary, but then it was like, well, well particularly in that context, it was like, what is going on? Right? Yeah, very much so. So that's how liquid was birthed in a Baptist church basement. <laughs> yeah. I remember the story in the book because I had the privilege of reading it and writing the forward to your book, but it grew pretty fast, didn't it, that Bible study? 
It did. We were surprised. And again, we, that was not the expectation, nor was it the goal. Um, you yeah. know, we're just like, we want to provide relative relevant content. And what we found is people began inviting their coworkers and friends. And so all of a sudden it went from, you know, a class of 12 to 40, 80, 150. And with the church's blessing, we moved out of the basement because they couldn't hold us anymore to a tavern about a mile, <laughs> <laughs> about a mile down the road. And, uh, you know, I know what everyone's thinking because they're like, oh, I see why you call it liquid church, liquid right? Liquid church. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we always said, you know, we're not, we're not serving beer, just Bible study here. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it, it was the genius of that third place where, you know, it's, again, something called Millington Baptist Church was a very traditional, white steeple, the whole thing. I was teaching high school English at the time in journalism. And mm. so my coworkers, I just knew there was no way I was going to invite them into that kind of you know, very traditional environment. They're just not coming to that. But when we moved to the tavern and began calling it liquid, again, based on Jesus talking about the living water, you know, we were like, yeah, church should yeah. be refreshing. That's why we call it liquid. Let's clarify that. Okay. <laughs> so. Well, be honest, right? People hear the name liquid. Yeah. They assume it's a cult or a drinking fraternity, <laughs> right? <laughs> but, you know, at that time, we were very influenced by, you know, Jesus reaching out at the well uh, to the Samaritan woman saying, you know, I have living water here and it's, and it's not dry, dusty religion. So people started inviting their non-Christian friends and coworkers. And that's really where it blew up at the tavern, uh, you know, 150, 200, 300 people. We moved back into the traditional church uh, and start services at night. And that's where it just went on a rocket ship ride to where we are today. Really? Okay. And so what, when did you start? What was the year that you started leading the Bible study? So it was right after 9-11. You know, again, everything, really? yeah, Early 2000s. everything here, you know, in New York City is kind of marked around, you know, where were you, you know, in 2001. And um, I remember the first services, the actual, you know, because up to that point, what do we call it? Was it wasn't a Sunday school class as an outreach? You know, what is this thing? We would just, we just say it's liquid. Come and see. Right. <laughs> and um, I joined their staff in 2001 and our first services were two weeks after 9-11. And, uh, you know, that was a time of, it felt almost like revival. There was a sobriety to people, um, you know, this chastening that happened and people were more open and receptive to the gospel than, than, than we've ever seen them. Yeah. I mean, I'm far away from New York City, about 12 hour drive, but I still remember preaching that weekend after 9-11 and yeah, it, it was completely different. People who were never in church were in church and People were open and asking questions and, and the whole deal. So then you launch it as an official church independently in 2000 and... In, in seven. So yeah. we incubated there really for six years. And again, I give all the credit to the church fathers and mothers at Millington Baptist Church, you know. Yeah. Um, we had our yeah. services in the evening and they gave us a lot of rope to innovate, to use multimedia and video, do some unorthodox outreaches. Uh, they gave, I always like to say they gave me enough rope just enough rope, but not enough to hang myself. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, as a lead pastor now, I look back and I say, oh, I didn't even realize how much the elders and particularly the senior pastor, Peter Padel, he really took a lot of bullets covering for us, you know, allowing us right. to kind of innovate at that time. But it was the perfect incubator for us. And so we launched out with their blessing. It wasn't a church split, nothing negative. Right. But they just realized like, hey, we've given birth to a baby, this liquid thing. And so we launched out in 2007 on Easter with, I think, enough money to survive for 
three months. <laughs> well, that's awesome, you know, and you're right, because probably at the time you didn't realize what a gift that was and how hard it was probably for him as a senior leader to navigate that with his church, but kudos to them. And I, I got to ask you, you know, a lot has changed in the last 12 years. Uh, Liquid Church kind of had a DNA at the beginning, which I'm sure you've modified to some extent. But, you know, as I said earlier, Jersey isn't exactly crawling with mega churches. So it's going to take something different. How many, how many weekend attenders do you have now? You have seven locations and roughly weekend attendance? Yeah, about 5,000 people. About 5,000. 5,000 over seven locations. So that's a pretty fascinating story anywhere, but particularly for Jersey. What do you think, what did you think it would take to reach a culture like Jersey? And then what over the last 12 years has proven effective in reaching a culture like Jersey? Well, the interesting thing is that, you know, here in the Northeast, it's very similar to Canada. It's a post-Christian yeah. culture. Um, so we're not starting with people at zero, you know, spiritually kind of on the, on, the, on the journey. They're not saying, you know, who is this Jesus you speak of? Um, yeah. <laughs> they're pretty much starting at negative four. And again, no aspersions to my Catholic brothers and sisters in the faith, but there are many folks uh, who grew up like in high school. All my friends were Catholic, kind of went through CCD, uh, you know, kind of go through all the machinations of that, but then really kind of stop. They drop out. CCD, sorry, I missed. It's that. like a catechism uh, class. Oh, okay. You know, kind of, it would be the Catholic equivalent of kind of Sunday school. But like myself at fourteen, you fill in the blanks, check the boxes. Right. It's I'm out of here. Woven into the fabric of your everyday life. And so when we start with people, they would probably be part of those kind of cult. They would assume they're Christian just culturally, right? Well, right. I'm not Jewish. Uh, you know, I'm not some other faith. Um, I'm not really dialed in a church, but I'm Christian, you know, um, but it right. would be more of maybe their ethnicity or, you know, their parents had denominational ties. So they've kind of, they've not had a true encounter with Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's not a life-giving you know, part of it forms everything I do. I actually look it through the lens of the Bible for my daily decisions. Um, so we're starting people kind of negative for it, and they're very cynical. Uh, you know, I think part of the heritage here is you had a lot of the Great Awakenings actually, right, actually beginning in the Northeast. But those, those revival wells are kind of clogged up now. And it's like, oh, right. this is the burnover region. Um, but again, I grew up here. And so I'm like, you know, people are like, you know, planning a church in New Jersey, you know, the Northeast, that's a, that's a graveyard for churches. But I'm like, hey, man, we're people of the resurrection. You, <laughs> you want to see a resurrection, you go to the graveyard. And yeah. so we have seen like a, a bit of a, I don't want to say revival, but I mean, we're seeing the Holy Spirit do something now in New York City, in New Jersey, in Connecticut, these traditionally, you know, very sterile kind of burnt over regions. The Holy Spirit's just doing a new work. And so I think part of what we have, um, or at least the Spirit, and this is what I talk about in the book, I think the Holy Spirit's flowing in a fresh way, not through our proclamation um, just on Sunday morning, what we traditionally think of as proclaiming the gospel, but our demonstration of it. So yeah. we lead the way the tip of our evangelism spear is compassionate cause. It's all about serving uh, special needs children, uh, bring clean water to kids in Rwanda. That's the public face of our church. And we have found that that cuts through a lot of clutter and cynicism that Northeast people have about, quote, organized religion. Was that compassion part of, like, you started that way, you launched that way, Tim? Yeah, I, and I credit my wife. You know, um, she grew up in that mm -hmm. Pentecostal storefront church in the Bronx, um, not a bastion of systematic thinking and, and strategy, 
but huge heart for people on the streets. Um, I remember coming back with her uh, for Thanksgiving break, and she said, why don't you come to my church? Now, here I am, right? Frozen Chosen, guy who yeah. checks off the order of service, you know? <laughs> right, right, right. I walk in there, and, you know, there's a guy up front with a tambourine, and this lady's got a horn, and this is back in the day when, you know, the, the worship leader had, like, overheads. You remember that? And oh, so he, yeah, yeah, that was great. And, you know, getting someone who could really do the overheads well, that was an art. You had the guy who couldn't keep up or it was crooked or didn't yeah. change the sheet <laughs> fast enough. Do you remember that? Yes. Back in the day? Yes. I that was like, vividly you needed remember. skills, man. I, I can vividly remember a guy with acoustic guitar. So the worship leader, he's got the acoustic guitar and then he's got a box full of the overheads and he puts it on <laughs> and he sings through the first two lines. And then I see him shake his head and he goes, oh no, not that one spirit. And he takes it off and he puts another one on. Sings like, no, no, that, <laughs> so that, that he's was running great. it himself. And I, and I said to Kyle, I said, what, what is, what is, and she says, oh, we call that being led by the spirit. And I was like, well, I call that unprepared. You know, <laughs> <laughs> you know just, they didn't have a good service programming meeting, uh, clearly, because this is chaos. And, you know, the pastor gave sort of a rambling homily, you know, very anecdotal, not exegetically correct. And so I'm just sitting there with my nose up, sniff, sniff, you know. And he got, you know, and now he's going to give the invitation. I, I'm kind of sitting there, cynical New Jersey guy, myself, who's going to respond to this? Well, all of a sudden, people start streaming down the aisles, including two drug, one was a dealer, one was actually a drug user, out on the streets who had wandered into the church during the service, give their lives to Christ weeping, and then he says, we're going to have a spontaneous baptism service. And I'm, I had never seen anything like it in my life, Carrie. I came from a very programmed, you know, to the minute, you know, kind of uh, structure of church. And here, this was not structurally sound, and yet people are giving their <laughs> lives to Christ. And my wife's mom is like, well, let's bring them home for lunch. It felt like it, I saw the New Testament, like Acts was really happening. And it ruined me because I said, maybe, maybe all that stuff in the gospel, that at 14 years old, I got headaches because it was a head knowledge of the gospel experientially could happen today. And so at Liquid, that's really our posture in the community. We're like, we have to go out, leave our seats and get out into the streets to serve and show, demonstrate the gospel before we can earn a hearing for it. You mentioned cynicism, and I'm glad you mentioned it because there, you know, certainly Tim Keller talks about it in New York City. Very, very cynical group of people he's trying to minister to. And then you had the same culture in Jersey. Is that right? You would describe Jersey as being largely cynical culturally? Yeah. Again, I fair? think you get that oftentimes around, you know, major metropolises like that. You know, they yeah. kind of, we kind of, you know, it's, it's the same way, you know, Pacific Northwest would probably be very similar. But again, people's yeah. city, you know, there's cynicism everywhere, particularly now with how partisan and politicized everything has got. So it has hardened, you know, and you have to go. So for us, we don't assume a dominant posture that like anyone's even going to know what, care what we're talking about or know the fundamentals of who Jesus is. And we're like, we have to actually demonstrate that in a way that is counterculture. Yeah. And that was my question. Like, what were the things either at the beginning or since then that you have done that you're like, you know what, uh, let's, let's combat the cynicism by doing X. Obviously, it seems like the, the compassion things you're doing, you're doing because you love Jesus and it's scriptural. But does that help overcome cynicism as well? Yeah. So I remember in the first, you know, year of our church, and again, we were paycheck to paycheck, just trying to survive. Could we do another yeah. Sunday? Um, we had this idea, just as real conviction, that we have to do something for the immigrant folks who are, you know, landing on our doorsteps here. We were in kind of a, a, a poorer section of the city, 
uh, and we're like, we can't just say, well, let's wait until we have our financial affairs and our help. We got to do this. And so we had an idea for an outreach we call, end up calling a free market. Now, everybody knows what a flea market is, right? You bring your junk. Yeah. <laughs> you, bring, you, try to, you bring your junk, you try to get top dollar for it. But we said, you know what? What if we had a free market where it's the opposite? People bring their best and we give it away for free, but oh, wow. to, we give it to the low-income families. And so we reached out to all of the you know, social service agencies, say, hey, who are the top, you know, we don't have to know their names, but the top 150 families who really need a hand. And, um, and it was incredible because our people, they caught the vision for it. And so they brought in, you know, they didn't just bring in junk. They were, some of them bought in brand new baby cribs and strollers and had their, you know, ski jackets clean because some of the immigrant people didn't have warm jackets for the Northeast winter and basically lovingly packaged these things and had this giant, it was, it was this premium kind, almost like shopping experience. And the only catch was everything was for free. And so that's the kind of thing that doesn't just catch the attention of the community. It catches where we are. It's a heavy media culture. And so that's where, mm -hmm. you know, certain media outlets like CNN, New York Times have kind of, you know, caught wind of things that we're doing that are like, that's not the typical evangelical posture <laughs> right? <laughs> to say, let's cancel services and go give away our best stuff to the poor. So that's what you did. You canceled services and gave things away. Yeah, that was, that was early on. That was part of our ethos, you know? And again, we, it was a very spirit-led kind of thing. And we've tried to, even though we've grown and, you know, as a multi-site church, have a lot of systems and structures, we try to make room, right, for the Holy Spirit to do something new. And, uh, you know, I write in the book about the time we did the uh, reverse offering. Uh, yeah. You know, that was, I mean, again, that was a, you know, that's a leap of faith. We, we had so one. So tell us about it. Yeah. Well, so it was, um, I think it was 2008, right? Great Recession had happened. Uh -huh. We got hit with Hurricane uh, Irene, which did, yep. you know, catastrophic billions of dollars of damage. And so um, here I am, you know, teaching about stewardship. And I'm looking at the Matthew 25 passage, you know, about, uh, you know, where the, you know, the, the king goes away and basically gives, you know, hey, three servants, you know, five bags of silver, two bags of silver, one bag of silver. And so I said to our executive pastor, hey, what if we gave away the offering. He's like, what? <laughs> I was like, just, just, just listen, we're not giving away silver, but give away, fill envelopes with 50s and 20s and 10s. And we actually pass the offering bucket, which we use a popcorn bucket, you know, again, it's right. part of our church's fun kind of thing. And people actually would reach in that Sunday, pull out an offering envelope, and they actually get the bill inside, 50, 20, 10. And because it says, you know, in God we trust, but do you ever think God trusts you? And we'll ask them to creatively invest it for the kingdom and then just come back and tell us the story of what they did. And, you know, that's a risk for a, a young church. We were, you know, a year and a half old, I think, at the time. And um, at the time, I think it was like about $30,000. Well, that was, you know, all we had and then yeah. some. Might as well have been 30 million, right? You yeah. got it. So, you know, what our people did, again, it just captured their imagination. It fired up their right brain, not just their left analytical brain, but their heart. Say, what could they do for the neighbors? And we said, hey, look, maybe you're a single mom and you just got $20. That's God just saying, hey, here's gas, you know, for your, for your car this week. God bless you. You use it. You know, you know. But we also had other people. We had these two women who, you know, the cake boss? Uh, oh, yeah. You ever see that show, right? So that's New Jersey, right? Kind of in Hoboken, you know, those fancy kind of Vinian's cakes and all that, or, or, or Carlo. And uh, so we had these two women who do the same thing. And so they took their, they had a 50, I think, and a 20, and they buy ingredients and make this incredible designer cake that they put on Facebook and say, this is what God gave us, the $70. We made this incredible cake. 
um, we're auctioning it off right now. And they ended up earning, I think it was like $400, $500 that they gave to a battered women's shelter. So it was like, we're going to put the power in the hands of God's people and see him multiply it through them. So it was just, even though we've grown in size and structure, we're always trying to push down on it and keep it grassroots feeling because that's, that's really who we are, kind of that gorilla from the ground up, make room for the Holy Spirit and God does something better than we all could have. Yeah, the thing that I've really appreciated in watching Liquid Church over the years, and I've been uh, tracking you guys for the better part of the decade, is it is that really unusual combination of all the things you've talked about, like, you know, as as Rich would put it, or you would phrase it, from the seats to the streets, you're out on the street, you're uh, getting clean water into communities, you're working with women and children's shelters, you're giving back to the community, and yet you're media savvy, and you've got a great band, and you use some really fascinating approaches to preaching. I want to talk to you about the media exposure you've gotten. So what, what outlets have covered what you've done? And then how have you made those connections? And how has the publicity been for you? Sorry, that was a big question. But um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was like, oh, that's three parts. Anyway, talk to about the media exposure you guys have had. Who, who's covered you so far? Sure. So like CNN, uh, you know, had us in to do an interview that Sunday morning uh, of the wow. day of the reverse offering. You know, again, I think part of it is God has strategically positioned Liquid Church at the city gates of Manhattan, right? Kind of the capital right. of the world right. here. Um, and again, not necessarily that we're doing is so new or novel, but, you know, God just has a unique, you know, fingerprint on what we're doing. And so they said, hey, here's a pastor. We're in the middle of the recession. Hurricane Irene just hit. What can people practically do? Can they really make a difference? And so they called us up on Saturday and said, hey, can you come in before you preach Sunday morning? Tell us about the reverse offering. So, you know, this is last minute. And, uh, but again, we're not too far, about 25 minutes outside Manhattan. And so shot in and, you know, talked with CNN. It was so funny because the anchor was like, now, do you think people will actually reach in to the offering or will they get struck by lightning? You know? <laughs> <laughs> Those are great questions. Yeah, but it was a chance for us to say, you know what? We really feel like Jesus, you know, we take his words quite literally, uh, you know, that we're blessed to be a blessing and we just think God's people can do that. And so, you know, as we've done these different, that's a, that's a unique twist, right? You don't see that a, a lot. And so we're always saying, let's look at Jesus and some of these ancient, you know, parables, experiences that he had, and how can we do them with a modern kind of twist on them that really serves people at a point of need? Um, and so there's no, you know, there's lots of opportunities for that. So we've had the New York Times cover us. Um, we went down to Asbury Park, which has a, uh, the largest LGBTQ um, festival uh, on the East Coast every year. And uh, this was when we were still at Millington Baptist. So if you can imagine, mm. we said, okay, so Baptist Church is going to a gay pride parade. And here was our radical idea. What if we hand out free water? Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, can you imagine what a radical thing? And, you know, and of course we get hit with rocks from both sides. Uh, you right. know, you know, the good, the good, you know, real conservative folks are like, well, you know, you, you gotta be going down there and handing out, you know, pamphlets and everything. And we're like, no, we're genuinely just going out, no strings attached, love and grace. It's a hot day. We're giving them clean water. And then the organizer parade, we're like, okay, you know, are you here to convert, to, convert us? Uh, you know, are you here to, and so, we said, we're genuinely just here to give out clean water. 
And, uh, and it was funny because Carrie, uh, there was this moment where it was about an hour before the parade and the organizer said, you know what? We don't trust evangelicals. Um, I'm wow. sorry. We've, we've spent a lot of time, you know, over meals with them, talking with them and, and, you know, trying to show genuinely from our heart. We're just, this is just compassion, no strings attached because we feel like, you know what? Traditionally, the church has been a source of great hurt and pain and rejection towards the LGBTQ community. And so we're like, can we just, can we just provide water for people? Uh, as a, ki- a gesture of kindness. And so they said, you know, we just, we just can't trust evangelicals. Wow. Well, so here we are with a tractor trailer full of pallets of water and all of our people down there in their liquid t-shirts saying, hey, we're just here to, you know, show you God's love. And uh, wouldn't you know it, that day, it goes up to 98 degrees in Asbury Park, <laughs> New Jersey. <laughs> I'll be right back with the rest of my interview with Tim Lucas. But hey, we have some really special things for you as podcast listeners. It is book release day for Tim's new book that he co-authored with Dr. Warren Bird. It's called Liquid Church. And not only does it feature what we talk about, but a whole lot more, some strategy that's really good. And because you're a listener, we've got some free bonus launch materials. If you order the book today, here's what you get. You get a 52-page small group guide and downloadable curriculum you can use with your congregation, your group, your team. You get chapter-by-chapter videos to help with training and a free 22-page ebook by Tim called Seven Sermon Series Guaranteed to Grow Your Church. So yeah, like sermon series that are just kind of done for you on evangelism, stewardship, volunteer culture. Um, So you can head on over to liquidchurchbook.com today to learn more and collect on these bonuses. So Tim Lucas and Warren Bird co-authored the book together, and it's a beautiful sort of mashup of research on reaching young adults plus the story. And it is the story of Liquid Church in New Jersey, one of America's 100 fastest growing churches, according to Outreach Magazine. And I think personally, the content on chapter five alone is worth the price of the book. You'll learn a whole lot about their secret sauce of communication, how to increase generosity and evangelism in your church and raise up high capacity leaders and staff and volunteers, which is always a challenge. So, and don't forget the bonuses too. So head on over to liquidchurchbook.com to claim your bonuses today. And now back to the rest of the interview with Tim Lucas. This is right where Bruce Springsteen got his starts, right next to the Stone Pony, okay? And uh, right on the Jersey Shore. And, uh, you know, those organizers, they come up to us and said, well, Pastor Tim, we'll just ask you real quick. We got a, we got, we have a troop of drag queens, uh, behind the stage who are about to go on perform, but a couple of them are dehydrated. Is there any possibility that you could share some of your water? And we were like, absolutely. And so our pastors (laughs) get our hand trucks, you know, delivering that water behind the stage. And we got to serve and wash the feet of 12 drag queens before they went on the gay pride parade. So the New York Times came and covered that one. That was fun. Wow. With uh, And I know you've had dozens of media coverages. Do you issue press releases or how does that work? Does the media hear about it? How, do, how does that actually work? Yeah, so at the very beginning, it was very viral. You know, it was very, it wasn't calculated. Yeah. It was just like, we're like, hey, we're gonna be handing out, you know, bottled water at a gay pride parade. You wanna join us? Uh, and we put it on Facebook. Instagram wasn't there at that time, but you know, we just put it out there, and so we'd get a lot of uh, word of mouse is the best way I can say it. <laughs> word of mouse, that's you know, funny. that's that that really is like for us. That I talk about this in the book, like you know, uh, at Connexus, right? Nothing better than word of mouth advertising. Hey, mm-hmm. I've tasted mm-hmm. living water. You got to come see this. You got to taste yourself. 
But then for us, word of mouth is a big piece of it. Um, we're very intentional. Um, I don't want to say calculating, but we're very intentional mm-hmm. about making sure we put that kind of stuff on social, whether it's Insta or Facebook, um, inviting people to it, shooting a quick 30-second, 60-second you know, little bumper, what's the event or the outreach going to be about? And what we found is that's the kind of thing that really garners the attraction of the media in this area. Okay, so they're they're following you or some reporter has a friend who shares what you're doing and they're like, hey, maybe there's a story here. Yeah. Yeah, and we've cultivated those relationships though. So we've been intentional. I mean, directly answer you now, we actually do cultivate like a press release if we know we're going to do a big project. Uh, for instance, two couple months ago, we did a, a thing called Homeless Church where we, asked, you know, we tell her 5,000 people, you know, Sunday morning mega church. We said, hey, next Saturday night, cancel all your plans, come to the church, we're gonna give you a cardboard box and we're gonna sleep out overnight on in the parking lot to identify with the homeless. We're not asking you to write a check, but you come sleep out overnight and we will donate $25 for every person who sleeps out overnight in a church wow. parking lot. And we had an enormous turnout. We were able to give $50,000 towards you know our, our homeless uh, uh, ministry. We partnered with an awesome organization, New York City Relief Bus, um, but again, that's something that like, it's one thing to write a check. It's another to ask people to say, you know what? Leave your cell phones at home, come sleep out on the concrete. That's the kind of thing that we find media organizations. And again, cynical Northeastern people, they say, you know what? I don't know if this is a God thing, but that's a good thing. And we're like, I'll swim and meet you on that island. Hmm. Okay, let's talk about your, your approach to Sunday teaching. Because uh, you call it a TGIF world, Twitter, Google, Instagram, Facebook. What are you learning or what have you learned over these 12 years at Liquid Church and maybe even before that about communication that connects? Because I think your church is, you know, you're an interesting fusion between some charismatic but also an attractional model. And talk to us about your philosophy. Well, I think it was, you know, a lot of it was planted in the church that I grew up in, which again was extremely word-based, you know, as most, you know, conservative evangelical churches are. But the reality is we're living in a culture that's very image-driven. And I don't mean like, you know, what I'm saying is people think in pictures, they're right-brained. And so if you think about it, I mean, you've talked about this, Carrie, that for 400 years, the Protestant sermon has basically been unchanged as an art form. It's a man or woman standing up there and holding forth for about 40 minutes. It's a lecture kind of format. A gifted communicator knows some rhetorical tricks to kind of simulate dialogue and get some audience Mm. interaction. But for us, I just am aware that like more people are watching my teaching via the screen than in person. So at our broadcast campus, right, we may have two, 3,000 people in person on a Sunday morning, but we've got another 3,000, 4,000 who are sitting in our campuses or they're watching church online or they're streaming it on Facebook Live. And so I'm like, we have to be able to communicate visually. It, for me, it was kind of redeeming my past in film, you know? And the way I kind of like to talk about what we do is, is more cinematic preaching. Um, and that is we're constantly looking for what does the scriptural passage suggest in the way of symbols or props or a kinetic teaching style that engages, I think, millennials and Gen Z, but I actually think it's any human now, right? I mean, most people have the attention span of a bumblebee, right? <laughs> And so, you know, the modern church was always like, well, you got to preach shorter. I don't think that's true. Uh, I'll go 50 minutes. 
But we have people who walk out and they say, that just flew by. I just, I was so engaged because we recognize like, you know, it's not just a linear three-point sermon. We have to connect people. We got to fire up that right brain lobe. You know, yeah. that's, I so talked a little do you bit do? about Like, how do, you, how do you do that? How do you use the time differently than somebody who's just lecturing for 40 or 50 minutes? Sure. So, you know, I kind of took my cue from Jesus, right? He is a, he was a very kinetic preacher. Uh, you know, he, all of his, his sermons were actually very short. <laughs> mm. uh, he told a lot of stories. We call them parables, right? And they were so sticky, right? That we can, you know, parable of the lost son, the parable of the lost sheep. You know, we, we know these stories. But then he also would use symbols. Uh, you know, take a look at the, you know, think about the birds of the air. Look at the lilies of the field. How about this net full of fish? And so I've kind of translated that into a particular, I don't want to say it's our formula, but it's our secret sauce for teaching and uh, retaining people's attention uh, to the scriptures for about 45, 50 minutes. And it's like a three-legged stool. You've got scripture as one leg, but then you have story as another leg because you have to connect emotionally with people. But the third leg that most communicators I find ignore is the symbol. So scripture, story, mm. and symbol. So give you a practical example. So I did a, a series on the seven churches of Revelation, um, you know, and we created kind of a Jason Bourne trailer for that, you know, a video that we put out on social and it kind of looked like the Bourne identity and, you know, but seven weeks on Revelation at the end of the day, right? We're kind of going through verse by verse. Well, for each week, our creative team said, you know, what is a symbol that really makes the scripture pop? You know, you talk about like a pop of color kind of thing. And so like, for the first week was, you know, um, Ephesus, you know, the forgetful church, right? Hey, you guys are great, but you have one thing against you. You know, you've, you're, the, your love for the Lord has grown cold. Yeah. And so we got actually a heart, this model of a heart, and encased it in a cooler in a block of ice. And so, you know, two minutes before the sermon goes on, you know, I'm going out there, the bumper's playing, and they put a block of ice, <laughs> you know, on a table, on a high boy, with this heart encased in it. Now, wow. automatically creates tension, right? People are like, wait, what is it? And I'm, I'm just ignoring it. I'm just talking about, you know, some church of Revelation, Ephesus, and no, no, no. But then we get to the part of your, your love for the Lord has grown cold. You, you ever have that happen? You know, we start going through the motions. Mm -hmm. And man, that original fire I felt. Now, as I'm preaching, the, the block of ice is melting, you know, this heart yeah, is yeah. there. And then, of course, I pull out an ice pick. What do you do? You know, if you find your faith has grown cold and start chip, chipping away. And now the narrative tension is through the roof because people are just like, is he going to stab himself? <laughs> <laughs> and it makes it memorable, right? Yeah. And people, they remember what they see and feel. Because what we have found is when you take a concept out of scripture, marry it to an image, and then you connect it to an emotion, it burns in people's brains and they remember it forever. So do you do that every week? Or I know a lot of people would say, well, we'll do something that visual, you know, once a series or once a quarter or something. Or do you think it's something that people should do on a, like almost every time you communicate? You know, at the beginning, we did it uh, periodically. I do it almost every week now. Um, it wow. is truly part of our secret sauce. We've, set, we've found that God just kind of put his hand a blessing on it because it's so sticky that if people watch, think of someone scrolling through their Insta feed and they see a guy chopping away at a heart and a block of ice, but the sound's off, right? Automatically. They're mm -hmm. not going to read what the, but I'm going to watch that because it's a visual medium. And so I think there's another kind of reformation happening, right? We're moving from that word-based culture where people are kind of post-literate now. 
right? You know, the Middle Ages, you know, Mark Barrison was just talking about that. The stained glass told the story. Mm-hmm. Well, now they're watching screens, right? And so, you know, we'll do that. Like for that series, for instance, we went through the entire, you know, churches of Revelation. When we were in Laodicea, the lukewarm church, remember Jesus says, hey, you're lukewarm, not hot or cold. I spit you out of my yeah. mouth. So for that one, right? I say, no, I need a volunteer for this one. Volunteer from the audience, you know? So you got this like, you know, 15 year old kid in the front row, me. So I bring him up on stage and I give him a poncho and a set of ski goggles. You know where this is going. Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> and everyone sort of knows where this is going. But I'm like, church, I want to read this. So you got to understand, Jesus actually said, your faith makes me want to puke, you know, spit out of my mouth. <laughs> and so I take this long drink of, you know, a tall, you know, temp- room temperature water. And I was like, church, go ahead and read it. And they read it, you know, spit you out of my... And I just do this spit take all over this kid. And he is going bananas. I mean, people are just like, you know, high schoolers want to be in the adult service. <laughs> Absolutely. But it's not childish. People remember that thing. Uh, you know, they, they, it just burns in their brain because that was such a kinetic moment, faithful to the scriptures, but mm-hmm. memorable in terms of its symbolism and then the story we connected to it. That's great. Now, what, what would you say to people? I'm sure you've heard this. Well, that's just sensationalism or it's gimmicky. What would you, what would you say to people who think that? I would say, go look at the Old Testament prophets, <laughs> <laughs> right? I mean, you know, it, it, it was Jeremiah laying down in the middle of the road with a beam on his back, you know, uh, uh-huh. the, the scriptures are so rich. We have, we're the ones who've really neutered them. Uh, you know, hmm. Jesus was extraordinarily vivid and compelling in his analogies. And we're the ones who, again, kind of, it's more of that modernist kind of, you know, mindset that's like, well, you know, we just need to make sure there's, you know, four points and it spells something. And that's how people will remember. We've reduced it to a proposition or an idea uh, rather than anything else. Yeah. Well, you were really helpful to me, Carrie. I remember you said, you were talking about what's the difference between teaching and preaching. And- You had said, uh, I think I quote this in the book, you had said, you know, teaching is when you listen to a speaker and you say, you know what? That's a good point. He's right. In yeah. other words, you, you give intellectual assent. You're like, that's a good communicator. And that that is a true thing. And yeah, he's right. Thank you for that tip. I really appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. And whereas preaching is where somebody says, wow, he's right. I need to change. Yeah. And I don't know if you're seeing this, but we're seeing a shift, a migration from just that kind of, you know, hey, we're all about practical teaching, no doubt. We walk away with action steps every single week. But I'm seeing a migration from that just kind of propositional teaching to more of that high-impact preaching that really changes lives. I agree. I think there's a shift going on right now, and it's something I'm trying to reflect when I teach as well. Um, and I wonder if it's just the emergence of, of you know, that post-Christian culture is becoming more and more dominant. It's not really so much about convincing the already convinced about what's right. It's about reaching people who aren't. And even, even convicting Christians who have kind of, you know, the, the seven churches of Revelation are a good example, who've kind of lost their way. We just kind of got lost in the culture. I need to be reminded, wow, my heart was really lukewarm or I was cold or, uh, you know, and I, 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 I think that's true. Hey, Tim, I want to ask you a little bit, and I know this has been part of your story you've talked about before, uh, but I mean, this just, it's an incredible story, you know, to build a church that size, but you hit a bit of a wall early on 
in Liquid Church, right? Did you experience burnout a few oh, years yeah. in? Can you talk to us about that? Oh, yeah. Again, I've resonated with your writing and, you know, what you've said and, you know, didn't see it coming. I hit the wall early. I feel like it was a gift. I had the blessing of burning out early. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, come on. Anybody who has, you know, been a church planner, an entrepreneur, starting a business, you know, the first two years, it's exhilarating. You know, it's adrenaline. You can run on adrenaline for a while. Long time. Long time. But in church world, we'll just call it the Holy Spirit. And <laughs> right? Even though it's really, really Red Bull, you know, and, uh, and ignoring my family. I, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't a dramatic thing, Carrie, but um, as Liquid grew rapidly in the first couple years, again, we launched with 300 volunteers. Um, you know, first, first Sunday, right? You know, a thousand people show up. We're like, oh, praise God. And then all of a sudden, oh, I just grew it back down to 350. <laughs> hundred percent. And then the long slog begins, you know? And so I had two kids who were under the age of five at the time. And I have a super high capacity wife. She's just tremendous. She runs her own uh, business and she's super supportive, but we had, you know, hands full starting in the, the church. And so she said, you know what, you know, six months, I get it. We got to survive at least till Christmas. And, uh, and I kind of kicked the can down the road. Cause she was like, you know, kind of need you to engage at home a little bit more. And so I said, oh, sure, absolutely. Once Christmas, you know, is over. Well, people come to Christmas. And then we say, well, we got to start small groups in January. Okay, once we're past the small groups, well, it's our first, you know, Easter. We got to, you know, the first services. Are we going to do Good Friday services? And I just kept kicking the can down the road. And so my wife was very, very, uh, Colleen, again, she's just extremely gracious. She's my biggest teacher. There's no doubt. My biggest sanctifying agent like Tony is in, in your life. Mm-hmm. Um but I remember there was one dinner where she said, sweetheart, she goes, it's not just that you're totally engaged when you're there at work. When you're, when you're here at home, you're not here. Uh, you're, yeah. you're checking your phone. You're, you're, you know, cheating with, you know, your texts, you know, uh, while the kids are trying to talk to you, trying, but you're not here. You're not engaged. So I kind of heard that. But again, you're in survival mode, right? We haven't scaled anything. Yeah. We're just trying to make sure it doesn't go under. And so here is my day of reckoning. I will never forget this. I walk in on a Tuesday night at, you know, seven o'clock when I told my wife, I'll be home at six, you know, help with the kids, all that. I walk at seven o'clock and she is sitting. I walk through the door. I remember, I'll never forget, I have my backpack with me and she is sitting on the couch and she has tears running down her face and the mascara, the whole thing. And Carrie, I thought like something happened to the kids. Like, you know, did somebody get hurt? Honey, honey, what is it? And so I run over to her and she's, she's really, you know, she's sniffling. She's saying, even though I've got the words out. And again, she's not uh, at all dramatic or emotional that way. And I was like, honey, what is it? I put my hand, arm around her. And she says, I can't, she can't get the words out. She says, you love her more than me. And I said, what? You love, I feel like you love her more than me. And I was stupefied. I didn't know what she was talking about. Yeah. Like, what, you yeah. Love her? Love who more than you? Like, is she accusing me of an affair? Like, what? And she says, that church. Mm. And when she said that, I heard in the distance a rooster crow, right? Because I swore I would not be that guy who sacrificed my family on the altar of ministry. But here it was. And I, I, she, ministry was my mistress. And so I had to not only admit that, but like true repentance, you got to take action. And so we went to counseling, extraordinarily helpful that, you know, we took a machete to my schedule 
And we made a really hard decision at that time because the church was growing, more requests, outside mm -hmm. speaking. But we actually came to a consensus and we said, you know what? I'm going to be gone out one night a week. I'm not going to do any outside speaking until the kids are at the age of 10. And then we'll talk about that together and make that decision as, as husband and wife. Was that like a decade-long commitment, like no outside speaking, it roughly? Was. Yeah, it was. I, wow. I think our— Was that hard for you? You know, I, again, I see it as a blessing, that early burnout, because I've got friends now who, you know what? It was catastrophic because it went on for 10 years. Uh, for me, it went on for about two years, and the Lord in his, you know, sovereign, a, a severe mercy, but he kind of intercepted it with my wife being, you know— you are that man. There was a Nathan moment. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> and um, again, counseling to us was so helpful because it wasn't just like, hey, this is, we love, it's thrilling. Ministry is thrilling. When you're reaching people for Christ, when you're making an impact, serving the poor, but it wasn't sustainable. And so yeah. I was like, you remember that, you remember that movie, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off? Oh, yeah. You may be, one of the classics, right? It's on TV. I was always watching. I remember there's that character Cameron and his father has this red sports car that, you know, he loves, you know, and, and there's this moment at the end where Cameron gets so angry and he's trying to peel, you know, put the odometer back. So the car's going, you know, the wheels are spinning backwards and he starts kicking it, kicking it, kicking it. And he says, you love her more than me. Almost the exact words that my wife said. Hmm. It was about his dad who was absent from his life and that he loved the sports car. And I just had this image of like, you know what? We could win the world here, 5,000 people, 10,000 people. We can make an inroads here in a graveyard, you know, in, in the Northeast. And if my son ends up at 15 years old where I was, I got headaches on Saturday night and my parents dragged me to that church and he's standing there behind the church, kicking the side of it, saying, you love her more than me. I will have failed. Wow. Wow. So that was a sobering moment. I do... I do feel like the Lord, you know, let me have that taste of burnout and the wreckage that could have come if I was still in that obsessive ministry disorder <laughs> pattern that I think just comes very easily to, you know, three types on the Enneagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Is that you? You're three? Yeah. <laughs> 100%. So one, one of the questions, like, you know, we've interacted numerous times at different different seasons, Tim. And I sense you have a lot of energy. I mean, what we're hearing on this podcast, that's sort of just you. And I've come back on the other side of burnout with a lot more energy and passion probably than I had pre-burnout. What have been some rhythms, patterns, and disciplines that have really... Because, I mean, you know, Liquid has grown. You're in seven locations now. You've done building projects. I mean, the whole deal, you've got a large staff. You've got lots of responsibilities and pressures. So what have been some of the rhythms, disciplines, and patterns that have kept you fresh for this long? The Sabbath keeping is at the top of the list. Um, yeah. I had not grown up with a good theology of the Sabbath. You know, I, I knew what it would have was on a theology test, you know, <laughs> you yeah, rest yeah, every yeah. seven days theoretically, but man, I got energy. <laughs> and, um, and so what happened is, again, in the wake of even that burnout, that was one of, we took a machete to my schedule, put those guardrails on, you know, my time around uh, my leadership. But then we also said, you know what? We have to have a legitimate Sabbath. And so now I work, essentially my workflow is Sunday through Thursday. It can go into the wee hours. We do this thing called Thursday Night Gospel Hour. It's a live rehearsal of the Sunday service with all the bells and whistles and media and music. 
but we lock it down because Friday is our family Sabbath. And it, it was really a cool thing because recovering that for me personally, just the insanity of life in the Northeast, it is fast paced, it is bell to bell, it's always bigger, better, faster, more, it slowed me down. And my kids were at that age where that became formational to our family's rhythm. So my wife would, she changed her schedule so she'd be off on Friday. So I would come home, you know, I might come home at 1 a.m. Thursday morning uh, after our live rehearsal for Sunday, but we were locked and loaded and we said, we're not going to talk about liquid. Friday morning, she's like, I don't care what time you get in, wake up, but your body's in that bed. And we go out on a date. We go for a walk in the woods behind our house. We're right by Drew University. And then we go out for lunch. You know, we, have, we just go to the local diner and we just catch up, right, on, on what's happened that week. And then we would go get our kids from school. And this was so beautiful. It's great. So where I remember waiting for our kids and we're out in the schoolyard and the bell rings and here they come out and my son comes flying out of the doors. I think he was like in third or fourth grade at the time. And the doors burst open in front of all the parents who were just standing there talking in the schoolyard. He goes, Daddy, it's Sabbath time. <laughs> oh, that's awesome. And of course, everybody's like, you're Jewish? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're Jewish. Yeah. And the, everyone else is like, no, he's a priest. Wait a minute, he's married. What, what the? <laughs> but in his mind, Sabbath meant, man, there is no liquid. I got daddy all to myself. And it's our special yeah. family time. And that became real sacred to us. You know, uh, my kids are teenagers now, um, but we still have and They don't that. burst through the doors going, daddy, anymore. Yeah. <laughs> we, they, they do, but they don't say Sabbath time. They act a lot more cool about it, but they'll actually text me, you know, at 2.45, hey, can we go fishing? Can we go, you know? And yeah. so that's become very life-giving, you know, Carrie, because you can't, there's that, you know, you can do it all. Well, you know, you can do it all, but you have to prioritize in a sense and realize there's seasons. So I was really liberating. I remember Andy Stanley saying that. This was helpful to me, where he said, it's not a no forever, it's a no for now. And so like, even with this book, you know, I, I knew there was a book in me. I knew the Lord was writing a story here and there's some transferable principles that'll be helpful for others. But I was like, now is not the time. I just got to keep my eye on the ball, which I got these 18 years with my family. My daughter's 17, you know? And so I got one more year with her before she's off to, you know, college, oh, yeah. university. It flies, man. I'll never get it back. Um, so yeah, there were some things that I would have liked to see happen sooner, but again, I look at it, it's much more healthy to allow God to set the timetable. Do you have any protocol for your phone on the Sabbath? Because I can imagine that, okay, you're ready to go, uh, but the texts start to come in or how do you handle that? Yeah. You know, it's become, I become a much more humane leader. I like to think with even our staff. Because I used to send out email, you know, and, and you're somebody I know who's, you know, maximized time and you have a workflow, right. but I would set up emails, you know, writing the night before and then have them boomerang to send at, you know, 530 in the morning. And, uh, <laughs> and they think you're up. Yeah. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. And it would give this impression that like, hey, he's up at 530 in the morning. He's ready to go and he's talking about a strat plan. And, and it would just create this kind of crazy cycle, you know, this, this, this manic expectation that we're on all the time. And the first thing you wake up, well, you better be checking your phone. And the reality is here, I'm giving mixed messages. I'm like, you better be spending time with the Lord. You know, I can't, I, we can go into ministry and we have a lot. Can, this is one of the great secrets, right? That nobody really acknowledges. We can accomplish a lot in our human strength and energy. Like it's amazing what the Lord has gifted men and women with leadership gifts to do. And most of the time, the world doesn't really know what comes out of the flesh or comes out of the spirit. 
but long-term, it is always revealed. And so here I am telling our staff that, you know, it's your time with the Lord. Let it flow at the overflow of that, your leadership. Mm. And then I'm hitting them, you know, with requests and emails at 5.30 in the morning or shooting them a text at, you know, 10 o'clock at night. So we do have those guardrails around it. It's really during working hours. Now, of course, there's exceptions and things, but nowadays it's way more the exception than it is the, the rule. So because you lead that way and everyone kind of knows it's your Sabbath, is it a common day off? Like are the liquid offices closed on a Friday or how do you, how do you work that? Yeah, so we have a central staff um, and then we have our campus staff. So the campus staff would have a very similar workflow. It would go Sunday through Thursday uh, with Friday off, but then we'll have our central people who are Monday through Friday. Uh, so those might be, you know, it could Got be it. finance, small groups, HR, that sort of stuff. Um, but I have to say this, one of the one of the commitments we're making right now is we come around all the time. People are like, man, you got to have a Saturday night service. And we've just drawn a line, not judging anybody else who does, but just for us. We said, you know what? We're not going to be a seven day a week organization. Like as a church, organizationally, we are going to be a six day a week and we're going to have a seventh day of rest. Now, we're not legalistic about it. It might be Friday, it might be Saturday, but we have actually said we're going to reach less people, but we're going to disciple our leaders better and healthier for the long haul by saying we're going to observe the Sabbath as a church. That's good. So that common day for everybody is Saturday. Yes. Where everybody's off. Yep. Okay. Um, talk to us before, man, we could go in so many more directions, but gospel hour. I love what you guys do. I've heard about that. So you actually live preach your sermon before you deliver it in front of a congregation, before you deliver it publicly. Can you talk to us about that? Well, I think most communicators, right, they rehearse on some level, might be in front of a mirror. The key is, this is with a live panel of judges, American Idol style. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think, I think a lot of guys uh, and women, if you're a communicator on a regular basis, right, you want to have a trial run, you want to get into your muscle memory, you want to see what, you know, jokes work, what goes sideways, what was unclear. But a lot of times we use the 9 a.m. service as our guinea pig, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? I, I mean, I always hear that. I, I hear, I have listened to world-class communicators who actually, when they're telling their thing, they're like, you know, and then I make adjustments after the first service. And I'm like, why do we, maybe this is why no one comes to the first service. They're crash test dummies. <laughs> <laughs> so we started a thing. I mean, this is from the very beginning and it ended up being called Thursday Night Gospel Hour just because it was on Thursday nights, but it was when we instituted the Sabbath on Friday. So we said, we're going to stay as late as it takes where we have, the videos loaded, the slides created, the music, everything, all the props, everything in a live rehearsal. But the key was, and to this day, we have a table of four or five, I use the word judges, but it really is a mix of staff members, different ages, different ethnicities, and trusted congregants sit behind a table with a manuscript of my entire message. And then mm. I preach it live from start to finish, and I give each of them a red pen, and before I start, I said, now, don't be nice to me. I want you to take out the knives. <laughs> and I mean everything. You Joke falls flat, you circle it. Uh, I say something foggy or something like offensive. <laughs> you, you, you underline it, you redline it. I want to know everything. If there's something I said that wasn't even part of my message, that just was spirit-inspired, like, man, go into that. Or you have a better idea. There may be a better passage of scripture that will illuminate that point more. And it's been transformational because... They not only highlight the good, flag the bad, but they, you know, kind of redline the ugly. And what has happened is I have a much more, you know, a male who is middle-aged, 
you know, with my particular background, how do I speak to the diversity of people God's bringing our way? How do I speak to, you know, Indian American immigrants, you know, who are here, you know, with their third culture? Uh, How do I speak to an LGBTQ person who walks in and wants to kind of know where we stand? And so behind that table, um, oftentimes we'll have a female pastor. We have one who uh, oversees our counseling ministry. Gosh, when I'm doing a you know message on relationships or marriage, she is able to speak in with nuance and practical examples that I just simply don't have. And it right. reaches, it, it just drives the message so much more deeper. Uh, having an Indian pastor help me add nuance when I'm talking about racial reconciliation. But hey, here I am in kind of the dominant culture. Um, one of the big secrets I have with speaking with folks and reaching the people who again, post-Christian, just far from God, I always make sure I have a brand new Christian or kind of a baby believer, you know, who, who always calls me on religious jargon. Um, I'll never right. forget this. I don't know if I can say this, but but I remember one time, like literally I'm preaching, da, 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 and then what happens? I preach the whole message and then I sit down with them and we go page by page. They tell me what they think, what they flag, put a question mark next to red line. And he says, uh, page seven, he just goes, I'm sorry. I just seemed kind of scratching his head. And he says, what the substitutionary atonement? <laughs> I was like, n- said nobody ever in seminary. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah. so he forces me to put theological concepts into everyday language. And because that's invisible jargon to me, I don't even know it, right? Where the frog in the You're kettle. not even thinking about it. Yeah. I'm not even thinking about it. And so I always have now in my ear, it's like I have an earpiece in four or five of these coaches who I'm always saying, oh, well, Karen would, oh, now if I said that, Karen would gave me a much better example of that. And then Greg made me sure, don't say substitutionary atonement, just put it in a very clear language where people can understand Mm -hmm. what happened at the cross. Um, You know, I'll have a single adult sit in there and she'll say, hey, always use these marriage examples or parenting. And it makes me feel a little isolated and kind of like, what place do I have? Um, So that feedback session, Carrie, if the message takes 45 minutes, that feedback session, that rehearsal, um, the debriefing of it takes 90, double the amount of time of the message. And then when do you do the rewrites? Like you're supposed to have the next day off. Yep. So I will stay here till whatever hour with my wife's blessings um, to rewrite, to reorganize, to sharpen. We've gotten it now though, that where there's really, you know, it might take me a couple more hours afterwards. But can I tell you what that does to go home on Friday to know that not only have I written the message, got it locked and loaded, I field tested it. Yeah. What that does even for our campuses, they know how long it's going to be. So, Because right. we time it. We time it page by page. And so they say, hey, it was 48 minutes, but you spent eight minutes on the story in the middle that quite honestly, you could shave it down to four. And so yeah. then we can tell our guys, hey guys, the video coming, you know, what you're, the broadcast you're getting on Sunday, it's 44 minutes. Um, that is a gift to so many people in the organization beyond me as the communicator, all of our campus teams, the people in, you know, uh, Liquid Family, our student ministry, they know how long they're going to be in the classrooms to prepare with the kids. It just is a gift to the whole organization. So a lot of that Thursday night gospel hour is part of our secret sauce in the kitchen. Oh, that's great. Well, Tim, uh, there's so much more in the book. It's not just a story. It's the strategy of reaching young adults and you've reached thousands and thousands of them. And there's a whole lot about acquiring churches and so on and so forth. Anything else you want to share though? I want people to get the book, but anything else you want to share? 
Well, you know, I think the subtitle of the book, you know, six uh, liquid church, six powerful currents to saturate your city for Christ. I think I would worry that somebody might think, well, I don't live in a city. It's not about right. being in an urban environment. Again, we have suburban campuses. We have some that are more urban, but wherever they live, there's one thing I know, right? Like whether it's Canada, Pacific, Northwest, Midwest, um, there are spiritually thirsty people who may have given mm. up on church, but they haven't given up on God. Like I'm not seeing yep. that. In fact, more than just like the nuns, like none of the above in the surveys kind of religion, I'm seeing more of the duns, you know? Like I'm sort of done with church as I knew it. And I think it's more of a critique of the, the style of that kind of, again, where it's just a word-based kind of analytical propositional church. I may be done with the seeker-sensitive thing. Like, I, you know, we, yeah. we live here in New York. We're, our band is phenomenal. We're not going to outclass anything being done, though, 20 minutes away, <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. the Beacon Theater in New York. So our people aren't coming for like, wow, they have an amazing light show and fog machine. Like, that's not... But we have to put the gospel into, you know, you, you wrote the forward for the book, Harry, and what I appreciate is mm -hmm. it's based on Ezekiel 47. And yeah. that was the prophecy that gives me, you know, encouragement for, you know, the next 10, 20 years. Uh, Ezekiel sees the temple um, leaking water. And so this water is flowing out of the, the temple. And when I realize it's really a picture of the New Testament church flowing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what just, I mean, just blew my mind. I'd seen that passage before. I'd never preached on it before. But in Ezekiel 47, the first 12 verses, the farther away the water gets from the church, the deeper it gets. You ever have people say, you know, I wish we'd go deeper in the church. Well, watch. Yeah. You get out of the church, that's when you go deep. And so Ezekiel has this image and, you know, that water is up to his ankles, then it's his knees, then it's his waist. And finally, he's almost swept away and an angel pulls him out and he says, you see all this? This is what it's going to be like in the last days. It's God's people flowing in the power of the Spirit from the seats into the streets. That's actually how the church is going to grow. So we're reaching spiritually thirsty people, whether they're, you know, we like to say, you know, Jewish, Catholic, Jedi Knight, we don't really care you know, <laughs> what your background is. They are desperate for grace. I mean, the real gospel of grace. And so we kind of have that tension of grace and truth, and we're just finding that it's, it's earning a whole new hearing for the gospel with millennials and Gen Z. Wow. Book is called Liquid Church, and Tim Lucas is the lead pastor of Liquid Church. Where can they connect with you and uh, with Liquid? Sure. Oh. So... Um, so I'm on the gram. <laughs> you can follow uh -huh, me on uh, Instagram at Pastor Tim Lucas. And it's funny, I used to do Twitter, but honestly, like Instagram is kind of where yeah. I live. My kids live, you know, uh, more and more, a billion people live, right? Um, yep. And it allows me to marry that kind of word and image together, picture and uh, propositions. And then the book itself, they can find out more at liquidchurchbook.com. Okay, liquidchurchbook.com. Tim, it's been a joy. It won't be the last time. Congratulations on the book and on this launch day. And thanks so much for investing in all these leaders. Thank you, Kerry. God bless you, man. Love you, my friend. Well, that was fascinating. And make sure you head on over to liquidchurchbook.com to get your bonuses today, including the one I'm most excited about, a 22-page ebook with seven done-for-you series on how to grow your church, series that are really guaranteed to grow your church. So make sure you check that out. Everything, of course, is in the show notes. 
So you can find those at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 289, or just Google my name and Tim Lucas's name together, and you will find the show notes. We have transcripts for you there, uh, quotables that you can share, and a whole lot more. Guys, today we're picking the winner of the book giveaway. Uh, I'm so excited about it. We're going to stack your library. Make sure you head on over to the socials. And again, all the links for that are in the show notes. And uh, check out what Remodel Health is doing. Be one of the churches that's saving now over $600,000 in healthcare costs. Go to remodelhealth.com forward slash carry. Hey, thanks to all the partners who bring this to you for free week after week. We have some really exciting guests coming up. We have, let's see, Chick-fil-A VP, Deanne Turner, Louis Giglio, Gordon McDonald. I have been looking forward to this interview for a long time. Martin Guru, Alejandro Reyes, Patrick Lencioni, Albert Tate, N.T. Wright, Carlos Whitaker, John Acuff, Francis Chan. Yeah, how's that for a lineup coming up? And again, if you subscribe, you get it all for free. Next week, we are back with Max Lucado. Man, I love the time I spend with him. And here's an excerpt from my conversation with Max. I'm a happier person if I don't feel like I have to have a quick and ready response to every question that surfaces. Uh, Sometimes I'm listening uh, because I honestly don't have a word of wisdom yet. And I'm waiting for the Lord to tell me. And, I, and, 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 and I've made the mistake of speaking prematurely and living to regret it. And so if I just listen to the problem or listen to the question or just interact on those, how do you feel? How, did, how does that make you feel uh, level? Then inevitably uh, something good happens. Again, subscribers, you get that absolutely free. And we'll see you next time on the podcast. So thank you so much for listening. And once again, I hope our time together today has helped you lead like never before. And thank you so much for an incredible first five years. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.